First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't generate amusing holiday cards, but it will personalize career paths for your people and let you know which suppliers are best so you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology, real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. Technology allows us to facilitate the ease of this exchange. And it's not an innovative idea on its own, but its use is certainly something that no one has ever done. I'm Talib Vizram, and this is World Changing Ideas, where we investigate how leading innovators are solving our most challenging issues. On today's episode, Rescuing Food. Well, we just celebrated Memorial Day, and people certainly made up for last year's cancelled holiday. With more people vaccinated and lockdown restrictions easing up, Friends and family all over the country gather to meet and eat. For some context, in 2019, about 60% of Americans planned a barbecue and they spent $1.5 billion on meat and seafood. But a lot of Americans are not enjoying plentiful food. And today, we're looking at just how bad the hunger crisis is. Well, I would say it's, it's greater than anything we've seen since the Great Depression. Katie Fitzgerald is the COO of Feeding America, the nationwide food bank organization. She said they've seen more need in rural and southern areas, but the demand has elevated in every county in the U.S. Our food banks, since the beginning of the pandemic, have consistently reported on average, a 60% increase in the number of people who are seeking food assistance. And what's alarming is that four in every 10 uh, of those people who are showing up at uh, food distribution lines have never had to access charitable food assistance before in their lives. By the end of last year, Feeding America calculated that nearly 50 million people were facing food insecurity. That number rose by 15 million since the pandemic began. Fitzgerald said she expects to see food insecurity only get worse this year. In response, Congress extended SNAP benefits this past March. That's the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program. The goal was to raise the monthly amount per person by $25, which would keep 40 million Americans out of hunger. But long before the pandemic, food insecurity was a problem. Sure, there are canned food drives that collect food every now and then, and food pantries that serve communities in need, but those are insufficient and oftentimes don't provide enough nutrition. We've created a cycle that keeps people dependent on food banks and pantries on a monthly basis for food that is often not well-balanced and certainly doesn't provide them with a healthy meal. This is how we work to end hunger. And what I've come to realize is that we are doing hunger wrong. That's Jasmine Crow. She's a social entrepreneur who started a food waste management company that redirects surplus food from businesses to nonprofits so they can share it with people who are food insecure. Crow said this country keeps doing the same things over and over again, expecting a different end result. In the U.S., our approach to doing good, or what we call charity, has actually hindered us from making real progress. We're educating the world on how many people are food insecure. There are television commercials, billboards, massive donations, the engagement of some of our biggest celebrities in the fight. But the ever-present reality is that, even with all of this work, millions of people are still going hungry. Partnering with businesses and diverting food from landfills to people in need is at the core of Crow's company. 
It's a similar principle to the one Leah Lizarondo thought of when she started her food redistribution program. Only instead of charging companies a fee for food pickups and having them provide the transport, her nonprofit runs on volunteerism. Since 2015, 412 Food Rescue has been redirecting excess food to hungry people by calling on volunteers to transport it from restaurants and grocery stores to various charities and NGOs. But the organization needed an upgrade in its coordinating efforts. So co-founder and CEO Liz Arondo and her team created an app called Food Rescue Hero. It acts like an Uber or DoorDash for surplus food. And it won last year's World Changing Ideas Award in the apps category. Well, welcome to the show, Leah. I'm so happy to be here and see you in person. Yeah, so ish. we talked... Uh, <laughs> ish, right, yeah. I mean, we talked about a year ago when Food Rescue Hero won the uh, the apps category for World Changing Ideas in, in 2020. But great to reconnect and talk a little bit about 412 Food Rescue. What is the 412, by the way? Can you kind of break that down for us? Yes. So 412 Food Rescue is a local food recovery organization that's based here in Pittsburgh. And it's the organization that I co-founded. You know, one of the reasons was really to pilot the Food Rescue Hero platform, whose vision was always to work globally in cities to facilitate food recovery. And most of the work I'm currently doing is focused on that platform currently. And the 412 is a, is a nod to Pittsburgh, right? Correct. It is our area code. Leah, can you kind of give us a little bit of background about hunger and, and food security in America and what you're kind of trying to solve? Yeah, well, there's many ways to give a background on that. I think um, one of the best ways I try to frame it is, you know, my own perspective on, you know, coming from and growing up in the Philippines where, you know, poverty is endemic. And the dichotomy between those who have and those who have not is obvious every day. It's inescapable. And, you know, immigrating to the United States as an adult, as a first generation immigrant, and, you know, understanding then that, you know, 40 million Americans were living in poverty and food insecurity. And on the other side, you know, in 2012, reading that you know, America is throwing 40% of its food supply in the garbage. So coming from a country where we ate everything nose to tail, root to stock before it was, you know, a trendy foodie thing, that, that disconnect was, I couldn't, I couldn't understand that. Yeah. And, you know, you mentioned that 40% of our food is wasted. So, you know, you've said in the past, it's, it's not really a supply problem. It's a distribution problem. Is that right? Right. So I think most of the conversations that, you know, we hear, I mean, not quite so recently, things are very different now between 2015 and, and, and the present. It has always been around, you know, how to feed the 10 billion, how do we more efficiently farm? How do we get better yields? Which are relevant conversations and, and conversations we need to have. But what's being ignored is the fact that if we don't solve a fundamental problem, you know, whatever gains we have in production is automatically discounted 40%. And then in the present, you know, we have this 40%. And what are we going to do about it? You know, you've talked about harnessing technology for the public good. And so 412 Food Rescue is kind of an example of that, right? Correct. So that is the 
whole intent with Food Rescue Hero. Mm. We have this attitude primarily that when we are serving people who are in need of support, if we offer the product, that is enough and they will come and get it. But we all know that's not true. That's not true for anything. Technology allows us to facilitate the ease of this exchange. And, you know, the biggest expression of that where we are is, of course, you know, delivery logistics. And it's not an innovative idea on its own, but its use is certainly something that no one has ever done. So can you kind of walk us through how the platform actually works? Yes. So it's essentially like as your headline described then, and I'm sure our friends at DoorDash (laughs) are tired of it, but it's it's the easiest (laughs) analogy. It's the DoorDash for food recovery. It's the DoorDash for the food insecure. And what it says basically is it connects sources of food surplus. It could be a restaurant, a supermarket, a university, an event. And taking that surplus and matching it with either a nonprofit that serves individuals and families experiencing food insecurity, or during COVID, what we've enabled is actual home delivery to an individual who actually needs the food. And then this is facilitated through a network of thousands of drivers that go from, you know, a retail location to either a nonprofit or a home. But I think the biggest difference, which I call the magic sauce, and also quite sometimes the most unbelievable thing about it, is that all of these drivers are volunteers. Volunteers who are performing at a higher reliability rate than some commercial services. So this app is the Food Rescue Hero app, which won our World Changing Ideas last year. Um, How can people sign up to volunteer on that app? So currently the app is available in 12 cities in the U.S. and Canada. And you, if you're in one of these 12 cities, you download the app, you sign up to become a driver, and you will get push notifications just like a delivery, any delivery driver, of opportunities around you. And you can pick one that's convenient for you. You can turn on the app whenever you want to. It functions the same way as anyone driving for delivery um, does it now. And, and what's kind of the advantage of this kind of small scale method you know, individual cars, you know, versus big old delivery trucks? Oh, my goodness, I could talk forever about logistics. (laughs) Um, So there's a lot of advantages. So the problem with food waste at retail is that it is, you know, a sometimes unpredictable, B, it comes in relatively small amounts. If you go to a Starbucks, it's going to be probably two boxes of the sandwiches that they had that day. And so deploying a truck, to get these small instances of food surplus, you know, is is very costly. And this food is also, you know, not sorted in pallets. It's not one kind of food. It's very, you know, the variety is wide. So trucks are ineffective. And on the other side of that, you know, when you look at populations that are food insecure, you know, we discount the fact that many who are in poverty have also very, very low mobility. And so when we go back to how we traditionally intervene on food insecurity or any social services for that matter, it is a highly concentrated hub and spoke model, which is great for people like me with cars and great for those who happen to live in areas where there's high frequency transit. But then when you think about it, you know, when you take a bus to a food pantry and you get a box, 
there's a couple of things you have to think about. That box is probably about 15 pounds. And I, you know, you've ridden the subway. I've ridden the bus and the subway. I am yeah. not, it's going to be very hard for me, you know, an able-bodied person to carry 15 pounds. And I used to live in, um, you know, in Cobble Hill where the next, you know, bus stop and the next subway stop is at least a mile away, either way. Mm-hmm. And so I had a 15 minute walk from either, you know, the two or three or the F. So it's, it's impossible. It's not, you know, when we talk about human centered design, you know, this is not actually reaching people or considering how they live. And so the advantage of the network on the one side as being able to recover even the smallest quantity of, of food surplus, it is also able to go to areas where a truck can't because, you know, it's one car. We can send that car to a home in the same way that my groceries get delivered to me. We can send it to a housing, a public housing community that only has one bus line going to it because unfortunately, lots of public housing in many communities are built in very isolated areas. And it can serve the senior who certainly cannot carry a 15 pound box for a mile. Right. So yeah. there's an unprecedented possibility of reach that wasn't possible before. And then one of my favorite things to talk about is that when a volunteer mm-hmm. can't make it that day, there's thousands of other volunteers waiting to take that job. And so it's so yeah. resilient. The cost of it is just so cost positive. There's so many advantages to it. It's a true, beautiful network problem what are some examples of some places where volunteers might be picking up food and and what kind of food are they picking up yeah so they pick up from grocery stores grocery stores have surplus every single day it could be you know the banana that's not green anymore not quite mottled yellow you know but Mm -hmm. one thing i learned throughout this process is that people don't buy yellow bananas they buy green bananas and that's right. very strange so <laughs> even if it's you know just turned yellow you know that banana is going to be lonely and so the <laughs> groceries know this and so they give that away so that the next day there's only green bananas on the banana shelf or you know the last pieces of kale that won't last you know a couple more days it has to look absolutely fresh so those are the things, or the bread, day-old bread. I eat bread that's more than a day old because when I buy it, I certainly don't eat it all the next day. Right, but right. supermarkets don't sell day-old bread. And if they do, they sell it for another day at a discounted rate. And then at that point, they won't sell it. So all of these right. things taken together is perfectly good food that we eat at our houses every single day, but for some reason can't be sold. And then they're taking... That food to nonprofits that work in in this kind of food insecurity space, right? What, you, can you talk about these nonprofits a little bit? In the beginning, you know, we only distributed to traditional food pantries. There was actually a point where we had so much food that the food pantries in our region were saying we can't take any more. And I remember our team, you know, our very small team, looking at each other and asking each other, "They can't take any more. What does that mean? Does that mean hunger is gone? <laughs> We've eliminated hunger, <laughs> but it's not really that. It's it's the right. fact that, you know, because we've limited ourselves to these outlets for food access, it was actually creating an artificial bottleneck where we thought, okay, we can only distribute to these. But, you know, when we talk to other nonprofits that serve populations who are experiencing food insecurity, but may not be delivering that direct service, and we ask them, okay, so, you know, you are a housing community or you are, you know, a community health center. If you were to receive, you know, a daily delivery of food that your clients can take home after they've, you know, accepted your service or, 
even in the housing community where they live, would you take it? It's free. And 100% of the time they would say yes, because they know that, you know, these are comorbid factors. You know, when someone is going to a community health center to receive free health care, you know, that means they are in poverty. And, you know, coexisting with that is hunger. So food actually gets delivered now to not only traditional food pantries, but any social service organization. And that, again, because of that, you know, our reach has extended and has allowed many people to access food support than ever before. First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos. But it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia. Or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks. And automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations. So you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology. Real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. And you mentioned earlier that due to COVID-19 now, you're also delivering directly to people's homes. Yes. So one of the things that's always been in our product roadmap has been home delivery. But, you know, that is a difficult thing to actually operationalize. A, we've had to strengthen the vetting of our volunteers who are able to do home delivery to match commercial delivery services in terms of background checks because they will get addresses. Mm -hmm. And so we had to implement that. We also had to implement this this kind of um, process logic of what we call one-to-many, where, you know, a delivery driver for a restaurant would pick up many orders and deliver it to many different homes. But kudos to our technology team, Bootstrap from the very beginning, and you know, really delivering that feature and allowing us to serve the most isolated during COVID. And we could never foresee, you know, a crisis like this, but there is no other crisis that we're, you know, built for, you know, because we can do this and we are the only platform that is able to. So uh, how has the pandemic changed things on, on the supply side? I mean, last time we talked, I remember you you said delivery drivers might pick up food from the Google offices or the, the Duolingo offices or the Pittsburgh Pirates game. Correct. But, you know, during the pandemic, obviously, offices are not really functioning as they were. You know, baseball's not functioning as it was. So how, how has the pandemic changed things on, on that side? So we did experience significant decreases from these uh, from that segment of our supply. You know, universities, workplaces, events, catering. Those are the three, um, uh, the four segments that, you know, really declined. But one of the fortunate things as well is that, you know, I have to say, you know, the, the government really stepped up during this time, understanding that food supply and, and the need has escalated. The USDA instituted this program called Farmers to Families, which actually allowed us to access and provide food that, you know, more than made up for the decline. In fact, you know, before the pandemic, we were averaging about, you know, in Pittsburgh at the very least, about 300,000 pounds of food a month. And during the pandemic, that rose to 1.2 million pounds of food a month, both using our current supply. Grocery stores are doing very strongly. So that did not decrease at all. Coupled with federal support in terms of food, we have actually increased, you know, fourfold. Wow. 
Amazing. And any other kind of stats you can share that gives us kind of an idea of, of what impact you've had, you know, since you started this initiative? Yeah, there's a couple of measures that, you know, I get really excited about. The way we measure impact in terms of food insecurity traditionally is talking about what we just talked about, you know, how many pounds of food did you distribute? And that's a great measure of outputs and, you know, a reflection of, you know, kind of the operational efficiency of your team. But that's not really understanding how this effort is affecting hunger and food access. So there's two measures that we currently use that go directly at the heart of the problem which to my knowledge is not being used anywhere else. So when we talk about, when we say about, you know, one in five Americans are food insecure, that number typically comes from the USDA through a population survey that they implement every single year. And there's many different kinds of questionnaires. What we essentially did was we took one of them, which is a short form, and we deployed them to some of the organizations and the recipients of the food and basically measured a before and after. So what we found was that in the populations that we serve, if we use the same USDA survey to measure food insecurity, we improved food security 90% in 90% of that population. The other measure of impact that we um, deploy is access to food. So we just basically what we did was is we mapped the before picture, which is, you know, these are the food access points in our region before we activated these new ones, these social service organizations to become food access points. And then we overlaid all of these new organizations that are now providing food, whether it's housing site, a senior center, a community health center. And what we found here in Pittsburgh is that, you know, 13,000 more people in poverty are within a 15-minute distance of food access, which directly mirrors our poverty rate, which, however, is around 13 to 14% pre-pandemic. So those are, for me, you know, two clear outcome measures of how this model can impact food insecurity. And in terms of uh, 412 Food Rescue, what are your future plans? I know you've expanded now to to 12 cities, which is more than than last time we spoke. I think it sounds like it's it's kind of doubled. Yes, I think when we spoke, we were in five. I think that's right, yeah. So what what else is on the horizon now? Yeah, so it's a 412 Food Rescue is the local organization. We have kind of rationalized the separation of the platform from the local organization. And what we essentially do is we license the Food Rescue Hero platform to other food rescue organizations in other cities. What a lot of people don't know is that there are many, many food rescue organizations everywhere, but mostly have been operating in, you know, analog. And so that limits their scale. And some of them still use trucks, but want and understand the advantages of, you know, really using a network of drivers. Mm -hmm. And so that platform is what is being licensed to other cities. And uh, that's the next focus of growth. Just lastly, then, Leah, you know, on a broader kind of scale, there was this stat from the Bureau of of Labor Statistics that said Americans spend about a half hour preparing food and and two and a half hours watching TV. Yo, (laughs) how could we and, you know, the pandemic might have changed that now that we're at home more cooking more. How can yeah. we convince people to, to spend more time cooking and, and cooking healthy <laughs> and rebuild that connection kind of between food and, and our health? Right. It's, it's a fascinating thing. It's, you know, it was two and a half hours watching TV, you know, 30 minutes preparing. And that includes a cleanup. Right, <laughs> so right. it's not even, you know, the whole cooking experience. Yeah. 
And, you know, and coupled with that is, you know, during that time in 2014, I think typical medical school would give two hours of nutrition instruction Hmm. the whole time in medical school. So there's very little focus on food itself. There's a lot of factors to that, you know, our busy lifestyles, the products that we are um, presented with, you know, in the grocery store are all ready to eat and quick. The way that, you know, cooking has been characterized as, you know, just simply an enormous chore. So we don't want to spend any time with it at all. I am a time challenged person. And I have to admit, you know, I do not spend much more than maybe 30 minutes to an hour a day making food. But I also don't watch two and a half hours of TV. In fact, you know, I, one of the things I like doing when someone says, you know, share a piece of tree of trivia. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I haven't owned a TV in 20 years. Uh, <laughs> so yeah. I think what the pandemic has shown us as we all tried to make sourdough, right? <laughs> and <laughs> right. the best version of banana bread um, <laughs> is that we do like cooking, you know, given the time, given the freedom to do it, there's enormous pleasure in that. You know, you and I both work mostly, you know, with our thinking, there's no handwork and handwork is extremely meditative and cooking is one of that. And it's actually healthy for us, just the process of it. And of course, whatever food you make at home, you know, whether it's the most indulgent recipe is still going to be healthier than what you'll get at a, any other place. Sure. So cooking is what I always say is the simplest and most primary intervention that we can have, you know, to go back to being a healthy society. Uh, well, yeah, hopefully some of these pandemic projects have, have changed that. How did your sourdough turn out? <laughs> <laughs> I totally failed. It always dies. I don't know why. So I went back to yeast. <laughs> nice. Well, at least you had to go. I didn't. I didn't even try. You didn't. You didn't, didn't even try. I didn't. I oh, I cooked man. a lot, but I didn't. I did. I don't think I had the patience. You just did not bread. attempt sourdough. I didn't. No. <laughs> so anyway, uh, Leah, it was it was great having you here. Uh, thank you for your work in the space, and and it was great to catch up again. Great to catch up with you, Talib. Yeah, it was really good to catch up with Leah. I was uh, happily surprised that that. The operations of Food Rescue have been doing really well this year, uh, despite the pandemic. Um, you know, obviously, food insecurity has increased uh, a lot during during COVID nineteen. It sounds like they're, they're they're doing really well. They've expanded to twelve cities, uh, which is pretty much double since the last time we spoke. And it's really made me think about you know how we use apps. You know, we tend to use apps like this, like you know Uber and. Um, DoorDash as convenience apps, right? Uh, it's kind of become a luxury. You know, you don't want to cook on a Friday night and, you know, you're ordering out your Grubhub. But there's some people who, who need these apps as a, as a necessity. And I think it's just a really good use of tech, especially uh, at a time where, you know, we're questioning the benefits of big tech and the Facebooks and Googles. So that's really nice to see. That's it for our show today. Join us next time to learn more about the innovative leaders seeking to make a difference in our ever-changing world. Please give us a rating or review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Talib Vizram. Our show is produced and edited by Avery Miles. 